With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Riley and Kimmy Show. The Riley and Kimmy Show. The Riley and Kimmy Show. Toys, movies, comics, and so much more. The Riley and Kimmy Show. And the more that you listen, the more that you know. The Riley and Kimmy Show. Thank you for choosing this special spotlight on the golden age of radio. I'm Patrick Riley, host of The Riley and Kimmy Show. Our featured golden age of radio production will be uninterrupted for your listening pleasure. After this tribute, please visit our website, RileyandKimmy.com, for our archived daily episodes. Our episodes focus on the world of old-time radio, nostalgia, and pop culture trivia. That's RileyandKimmy.com. This is the man in black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. From Hollywood, we bring you as star, Mr. Orson Welles, who this evening begins a four-week engagement as guest of these proceedings. In the interest of prime suspense, Mr. Wells and the producer of this series have scheduled four radio stories which they feel are particularly distinguished in our chosen field. The first of these is The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell. And so with the performance of Orson Wells in the character of General Zaroff and Keenan Wynne as Sanger Rainsford, who learned from Zaroff what was the most dangerous game, we again hope to keep you in suspense. I'm going to kill him. It's him or me. And I'm going to do my best to make it him. Well, maybe it sounds crazy to you. I guess it does. Would have sounded crazy to me a few days ago when I was with Whitney on the yacht. I was on a pleasure trip. Huh. A pleasure trip. How or I, how could I or anyone realize then the horror and torment I was to go through? How was I to know of Yvonne? And the death swamp? And the hounds? How was I to know of Zaroff? Think of it. It was only four nights ago that the ship went down. We'd been talking about this island, Ship Trap Island, Whitney said it was called on the charts. It was sleepy and started on down below to turn in. I was mixing myself a nightcap when I looked up and saw it. 
a tremendous reef racing at us out of the fog. I screamed out a warning, but it was too late. We were right upon it. of the explosion hurled me into the blood-warm waters. Terrified at the suddenness and surprise, my stomach weak and sick at the thought of the others. The sea was eddying furiously around the sinking remnants of the ship. And a certain cool headedness came to me and made me swim desperately away. Or I might not have lived to go through the horror which was soon to come. I struck out to the right in the direction of the island about which Whitney had been telling me. I had no recollection of how long I swam, but all at once I heard the muttering and growling of the sea breaking on the rocky shore. With my remaining strength, I dragged myself from the swirling waters. All in, gasping, my hands raw, I at last reached a flat place at the top. I flung myself down at the jungle edge and tumbled headlong into the deepest sleep of my life. When I awoke, I was in a strange place, having no idea how I had done it. Well, Ivan... Our friend seems to be awakening. I... Where, where is this? Where am I? Do not Where's be alarmed, it? my friend. My man Ivan found you out on the cliff. And brought you here to be taken care of. Oh, well, thank God there's life on this island. I hardly believed. Few people do. Yes, you are quite safe here in my castle, Mr... Uh, Rainsford. Uh, yes. Rainsford, I'm... Sanger Rainsford of New York. Rainsford? Sanger Rainsford? Yes. Well, it is indeed a very great pleasure and honor to welcome you, Mr. Sanger Rainsford. You're the celebrated hunter, are you not? Yes, yes. You know me? Uh, by reputation only. I've read your book about hunting snow leopards in Tibet, you see. My name is General Zaroff. I am not English, Mr. Rainsford, but I went to a good school. Perhaps you recognize the colors of my tie. Uh, no, it makes no difference. I've lived too long in the jungle to be a snob. Well, I... <laughs> I can't tell you how happy I am to meet you, General. And I can't tell you how happy I am to meet you, Mr. Rainsford. But come, we shouldn't be chatting here. We can talk later. You must be hungry. Yes, I am, rather. <laughs> what? Uh, Ivan thought you'd like a robe. He's drying your clothes for you. Oh, thank you. Ivan's an incredibly strong fellow, but you mustn't mind his looks. His ears were cut off in battle, and he has the misfortune to be deaf and dumb. He is sensitive about his appearance. A simple fellow, really, but I'm afraid a bit savage. Oh? He's been in our family for years. <laughs> Follow Ivan, if you please, Mr. Rainsford. I was about to have my luncheon just before you awoke. You can have it together now. Does the robe fit you all right? Oh, yes, yes, perfectly, thanks. I'm so glad. You uh, have quite a collection of heads here. Lions, tigers, mm. elephants, moose, bears. Oh, I don't believe I've ever seen a more perfect specimen. They are nice. I take great pride in them. You have good cause. Coming from you, Mr. Rainsford, that is a great compliment. And here we are. You sit over there. Thank you. Not at all. Right, Ivan. <laughs> we do our best to preserve the amenities of civilization here. Please forgive my any lapses. Oh, of course. Yes. Well off the beaten track, you know. Uh, Shushu. 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 <laughs> 
This is my little pet, Mr. Rainsford. As a hunting falcon, Shushu is of no further usefulness in the field. But I am fond of its company. My not little sweetheart. Patience, my darling. I know you're hungry, my dear. We hunt tonight. Your, uh, your heads are really remarkable, General. Mm. That, uh, that Cape Buffalo is the largest I've ever seen. Ah, uh, that fellow. He's a monster. Mm. Did he charge you? Hurled me against a tree, fractured my skull, left me the scar. And I got the brute. <laughs> I've, uh, I've always thought the Cape Buffalo is the most dangerous of all games. Oh, uh, no, no, you're wrong. You're wrong, sir. The Cape Buffalo is not the most dangerous game. Yvonne, the wine. Uh, how does he understand you? He reads my lips. Think you like this champagne, Mr. Rainsford? Yvonne chills it expertly. Uh, no, no, the, the Cape Buffalo is not the most dangerous game. Here in my preserve on this island, I hunt more dangerous game. Oh, is there a big game on this island? The biggest. Oh, really? Oh, it isn't here naturally, of course. I have to stock the island. Uh, what have you imported, General? Uh, jaguars? Mm, jaguars. I hope you like filet mignon, Mr. Rain. I do very much, thank you. Uh, is it jaguars, General? No, 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 no. Hunting jaguars ceased to interest me some years ago. I exhausted their possibilities, you see. I... No thrill left in jaguars, you understand? No real danger. I live for danger, Mr. Rainsford. We will have some capital hunting, you and I. I shall be most glad to have your company. Yes, but I'll tell you, you'll be amused, I know. I think you may say in all modesty that I've done a rare thing. Yes, I've invented a new sensation. May I pour you another glass of champagne, Mr. Redsford? Thank you, General. God makes some men poets. Some he makes kings, some beggars. Me, he made a hunter. My hand was made for the trigger. My father once said that. Made for the trigger. My whole life has been one prolonged hunt. I've hunted every kind of game in every land. It'd be impossible for me to tell you how many animals I've killed. Grizzlies in your Rockies, crocodiles in the Ganges, rhinoceroses in East Africa. This is in Africa, by the way. That Cape Buffalo hit me and laid me up for six months. Mm. As soon as I recovered, I started for the Amazon to hunt jaguars, for I'd heard they were unusually cunning. <laughs> they weren't. They were no match at all for a hunter with his wits about him, the high-powered rifle. I was bitterly disappointed. I was lying in my tent with a splitting headache one night, and a terrible thought pushed its way into my head. Hunting was beginning to bore me, and hunting, remember, had been my life. I've heard that in America, businessmen often go to pieces when they give up the business that's been their life. Yes, yes, that's uh, so. Uh, I had no wish to go to pieces. <laughs> I, I, I must do something. Uh, now, mine is an analytical mind, Mr. Rainsford. Doubtless, that is why I enjoy the problems of the chase. Oh, no doubt, General. So I asked myself why the hunt no longer fascinated me. You are much younger than I am, Mr. Rainsford, and have not hunted as much, but you perhaps can guess the answer. Well, what is it? Simply this. Hunting had ceased to be what you call a sporting proposition. It had become too easy. I always got my quarry. Always. It's no greater bore than perfection. Cigarette? No, no thank you. Uh, no animal had a chance with me anymore. Not a chance. That is no boast. It is a mathematical certainty. The animal had nothing but his legs and his instinct. Instinct is no match for reason. 
When I thought of this, it was a tragic moment for me, I can tell you. It came to me as an inspiration, what I must do. And that was? I had to invent a new animal to hunt. A new animal? Oh, you're joking. Not at all. I never joke about hunting. I needed a new animal. I found one. So I bought this island, built this castle, and here I do my hunting. The island's perfect for my purposes. There are jungles with a maze of trails in them. Hills, swamps... Yes, but the animal... The animal, General Zara. It surprised me with the most exciting hunting in the world. No other hunting compares with it for an instant. Every day I hunt. I never grow bored now. For I have a quarry with which I can match my wits. Yes, but you still have I wanted the ideal animal to hunt, so I said... What are the attributes of an ideal quarry? And the answer was, of course, it must have courage, cunning, and above all, it must be able to reason. Well, no animal can reason. My dear fellow, there is one that can. One? But you can't mean... And why not? Well, I... I can't believe you're serious, General Zaroff. You're just joking. Joking? I'm quite serious. Speaking about hunting. Hunting? You're speaking about murder. Oh, dear me, that unpleasant word. I think I can show you that your scruples are quite ill-founded. Yes? I hunt the scum of the earth. Sailors from tramp ships, Laskars, Japs, mongrels, a thoroughbred horse, a hound is worth more than a score of them. But these are men. Precisely. That is why I use them. It gives me pleasure. They can reason after a fashion, so they are dangerous. But where do you get them? Oh, we visit my training school. It is in the cellar. I have about a dozen pupils down there now. They're from the Spanish park San Lucar that had the bad luck to go with the rocks up there. A very inferior lot, I regret to say. Poor specimens, more accustomed to the deck than to the jungle. Another glass? No. It's a game, you see sort of game. I, I suggest to one of them that we go hunting. I give him a supply of food and uh, an excellent hunting knife. I give him three hours start. I am to follow, armed only with a pistol of the smallest caliber and range. If my quarry eludes me for three whole days, he wins the game. If I find him, he loses. Suppose he refuses to be hunted. Oh, I give him his choice, of course. He need not play that game if he does not wish to. If he does not wish to hunt, I turn him over to Ivan. Mm, Ivan once had the honor of serving as official knouter to my old king, and he has his own ideas of sport. Invariably, Mr. Rainsford, invariably they choose the hunt. And if they win... Uh, to date, I have not lost. I do not wish you to think me a braggart, Mr. Rainsford. Many of them afford only the most elementary sort of problem, I assure you. Occasionally, I strike a Tartar. <laughs> she remembers the Tartar, don't you, darling? Yes. Yes, he almost did win. I eventually had to use the hounds. See? Wait a moment. I'll open the window. Hello, 
lot, I think. They're let out at seven every night. If anyone should try to get into my castle or out of it, something extremely regrettable would occur to me. Mm. Uh, but enough of this. Come, I want to show you a collection of heads I'm quite sure you've never seen before. Join me in the library for coffee. I uh, hope that you will excuse me tonight, General. Oh. I, I'm really not feeling well at all. Indeed. I know what it is. My old complaint. <laughs> Ennui, boredom. You need some excitement. Tonight, we'll hunt. Hey, Mr. Rainford. You and I. You're wrong, General. I won't hunt. I won't murder. As you wish, my friend. The choice rests entirely with you. But may I not venture to suggest that you will find my idea of sport more diverting than Ivan's? <laughs> my dear fellow. You don't mean that you plan to hunt me. My dear fellow, have I not told you I always mean what I say about hunting? This is really an inspiration. I drink to a foeman worthy of my steel at last. But I simply can't believe it. This must be some sort of dream. You'll find the game worth playing, Mr. Rainsford. Think of it, your brain against mine, your woodcraft against mine, your strength, your stamina against mine. Outdoor chess. <laughs> and the stake is not without value, eh? And if I win... I'll cheerfully acknowledge myself defeated if I do not find you by midnight of the third day. My sloop will place you on the mainland near a town. Or you can trust me. I'll give you my word as a gentleman and a sportsman. Of course, you in turn must agree to say nothing of your visit here. I will agree to nothing of the kind. Oh. Well, in that case... Hmm, but why discuss that now? Uh, three days hence, we can discuss it over a bottle of Veuve Clicquot, unless, uh... Well, your choice, Mr. Rainsford. I'm a hunter. You know my choice. Mm-hmm. Ivan here will supply you with hunting clothes, food, and knife. I suggest you wear moccasins. They leave a poorer trail. I suggest, too, that you avoid the big swamp in the southeast corner of the island. We call it Death Swamp. There's quicksand there. Well, I must beg you to excuse me now. We always take our siesta after our lunch. Don't we, Shushu? <laughs> Come, my little pet. You'll hardly have time for a nap, I fear, Mr. Rainsford. Uh, you, you'll want to start, of course. I shall not follow till dusk. Hunting at night is so much more exciting than by day, don't you think? <clears throat> well, au revoir, Mr. Rainsford. Au revoir. I... I'd fought my way through the bush for two hours, repeating to myself over and over again, I must keep my nerve, I must keep my nerve. My whole idea at first was to put distance between myself and General Zarov. And at this end, I had plunged along through the thicket spurred on by the sharp rowls of something very much like panic. Now I had got a grip on myself. I'd stopped. I was taking stock of the situation. I saw that straight flight was futile. Inevitably, it would bring me face to face with the sea. Well, I'll give him a trail, I muttered. And I struck off from the rude path I had been following and into the trackless wilderness. I made a series of intricate loops. I doubled back on my trail again and again, recalling all the lore of the fox hunt, all the dodges of the fox. Night found me exhausted, my hands and face lashed by the branches on a thickly wooded ridge. 
My need for rest was imperative, and I thought, I played the fox, now I must play the cat of the fable. A big tree with a thick trunk and outspread branches was nearby, and taking care not to leave the slightest mark, I climbed up and stretched out on one of the broad limbs. Rest brought me new confidence and almost a feeling of security. Even so expert a hunter as General Zaroff cannot trace me here, I assured myself. An apprehensive night crawled slowly by, my mind keenly alert for any sound, any warning. Towards the dawn, an instinct I never knew existed, like an animal must possess, impelled me to look far off in the distance in a westerly direction. Sure enough, following the trail with the sureness of a bloodhound came General Zaroff. Nothing escaped those searching black eyes. No crushed blade of grass, no bent twig, no mark, no matter how fine in the moss. My heart pounding furiously, I slid down quickly from the tree and struck off again into the woods. I knew I had to do something desperate. I knew that I had little time in which to do it. And 300 yards from my hiding place, I stopped where a huge dead tree leaned precariously on a smaller living one. Throwing off my sack of food, I took my knife from its sheath and began to work with all my energy. The job was finished at last. And I threw myself down behind a fallen log 300 feet away. I did not have to wait long. my voice, as I suppose you are, let me congratulate you. Not many men know how to make a Malay man-catcher. Luckily for me, I too have hunted in Malacca. You are proving interesting, Mr. Rainsford. Mm. Very interesting. The tree brushed my shoulders. I jumped back. I'm going to have a wound rest. So is slight. But I shall be back, Mr. Rainford. I shall be back. It was flight now, a desperate, hopeless flight that carried me on for hours. I don't know where I got the strength. I kept telling myself over and over again that I must keep my nerve. That I was competing with a monster, a super huntsman. Dusk came, then darkness, and still I managed to press on. The ground grew softer under my moccasins. The vegetation grew ranker, denser. Insects bit at me savagely. Suddenly, as I stepped forward, my foot sank into the ooze. I tried to wrench it back, but the muck sucked viciously at my foot like a giant leech. With a violent effort, I tore my foot loose. I knew where I was then. Death's swamp and its quicksand. But the softness of the earth had given me an idea. I stepped back from the quicksand a dozen feet or so and began to dig. When the pit was above my shoulders, I climbed out and from some hard saplings cut stakes and sharpened them to fine points. These stakes I planted in the bottom of the pit with the points sticking upwards. As fast as I could, I wove a rough carpet of weeds and branches and with it covered the mouth of the pit. Then wet with sweat and aching with tiredness, I crouched behind the stump of a lightning charm tree. Oh, I knew Zaroff was coming. I could hear the paddling sound of his feet on the soft earth. Zaroff was coming, and coming fast. He was not feeling his way along, foot by foot. Crouching there, I couldn't either see him nor see the pit. 
I lived a year and a minute, frozen, every muscle tensed. I shinned up a tree and looked back. My pursuers had stopped all right, but the hope that had been in my brain when I climbed died. For in the shallow valley, I saw that General Zaroff was still on his feet, but Ivan was not. Apparently, he had come along to hold the hounds. The knife, driven by the recoil of the springing tree, had splintered through his chest. I'd hardly tumbled to the ground when the pack took up the cry again. Nerve, 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 I panted as I dashed along. A blue gap showed between the trees dead ahead. The hounds were almost on top of me. I forced myself on towards that gap. I reached it. It was the shore of the sea. Across a cove, I could see the gloomy gray stone of the castle. Twenty feet below me, the sea rumbled and hissed. I hesitated. I heard the hounds. Then I leaped far out into the sea. here safe in the general's bedroom waiting for him. Three days are up, and I've eluded him. But now I must go further. In a moment, we will meet, he and I, and he will be unarmed. Only one of us is going to live. You understand that now. Hungry, I know. <laughs> Shushu. Rainsford. General. Rainsford. How on earth did you get here? Swam. I found it easier and quicker than walking through the jungle. 
I congratulate you. Extraordinary. You've won the game. Oh, no, General. I'm still a beast at bay. Here. Get ready, General Zaroff. Swords? Yes. Two of them. I see. Oh, very good. Very good, Rainsford. One of us, then, is to furnish a repast for the hounds. The other will sleep in this, this very excellent bed. <laughs> excellent. On guard, Rainsford. My late host said it would be a very excellent bed. And so closes The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell, starring Orson Welles. This is the truth. Do you understand? The truth. It must be the truth. It has to be. I, Robert Winsley Graham, a doctor and psychiatrist by profession, do hereby of my own free will and volition, albeit with deepest regret, make the following full and complete statement relative to that all but unbelievable series of events which has brought such disaster and misfortune to my house, particularly to my poor wife, Isabel. It had its beginning, properly speaking, some two months ago, to be exact, on the evening of July 25th. We were in the drawing room, Isabel at the piano, practicing, as she said, her Aunt Jane and I on the opposite sides of the room. Isabel, what's the matter? I don't know. I can't seem to keep my mind on anything anymore, even my music. <laughs> Nerves. Nerves? <laughs> Isabel. Yes, Robert? I don't wish to distress you, but it's been going on for quite a little while now. It's not getting any better. 
I know. Let's not discuss it, shall we? We should let me prescribe treatment for you. I could prescribe something for her. You can do remarkable things now with just the common old drugs under proper control. Drugs? It's not drugs that she needs. It's to get out of this house for a while. It's to get back to the concert stage where she belongs. It's work. Aunt Jane, please. I'm sorry. I don't believe in beating around the bush. You're an artist. You've got talent. There's no sense in your trying to subordinate yourself to somebody else. Aunt Jane, that's enough. I'm not subordinating myself to anyone. Really, Aunt Jane, you mustn't interfere, you know. Robert doesn't want me to go back on the stage. Darling, it isn't that I don't want you to go back. I'm proud of you. You know that. It's only because I think... Because I know that going back to a professional career in your present mental condition would be terribly harmful. I know, Robert. I know you're right. Oh, after all, I'm, I'm a doctor. It's my business to know these things. I, I get it. Probably the hospital. Hello. Hello? Yes, it's Dr. Graham. Oh, yes. It's for... Who? Huh. Well, when would you like to see me? All right. Fine. No, 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 no trouble at all. I... Very well, I'll be expecting you. Good- goodbye. Isabel, good heavens. Who do you suppose that was? Who? Roger Holcomb. Do you remember the case? Roger Holcomb? I remember it. Of course you do. The fellow was brought back from the dead, as the newspapers put it, about a year ago. Oh, yes. Huh. Well, he really was dead for four full minutes, as far as medical science was concerned. Then Bates brought him around. It was nine days' wonder at the time. Well, what did he want to see you about? I don't know. Something to do with his experience, obviously. He was in a terribly agitated state. Poor fellow had been walking up and down in front of the house for an hour, trying to get up courage to ring the bell. Finally, phoned from the corner drugstore. Why, the poor man. Why in the world should he do that? Anxiety neurosis. They hounded him, you know, in the most shocking way. Got out of the hospital. Preachers and spiritualists, movie agents, just plain fakers. People trying to find out if he remembered anything of the four minutes. He's supposed to be dead. People just trying to exploit him. Oh, must be Holcomb now. Take him into the office. Dr. Graham? Yes, you're Roger Holcomb? Yes. Come in. Pleasure to meet you, Mr. Holcomb. Yes, sir. Come this way, please, my office. Now, just sit down anywhere. Lie down on the couch if you like. You're tired. I am tired. Tired and dead. Give me your hand, please. For heaven's sake, there's nothing wrong with my pulse. That's all you think it is. I'll go. Why did you come to me, Mr. Holcomb? You know my history? Yes, most medical men do. Up until your disappearance. Yeah, most medical men do, all right. Then they tell me I'm crazy. Do you think you are, Mr. Holcomb? Oh, I see. You're like all the rest. Let go of me, please. Just, just a minute, right. Mr. Holcomb. You came to me for advice. For treatment. Just you tell me your story. Well, I was told you you specialize in strange cases. Hmm. Things that other men can't explain. And that's true in a way. Oh, you know what happened when I got out of the hospital. Yes. Followed me, questioned me, hounded me, day and night, trying to find out if I remembered anything, if I'd experienced anything. Beyond the grave. Yes, I remember that. Well, the, then you remember that my answer was always the same. That I remembered nothing. That I knew nothing. Well, I was wrong. Oh? What did you experience during those four minutes? I don't know. But it must have been something. Something I don't even dare to think about. How do you know this? Well, it, it happened the first time on a, on a boat trip which I'd taken to recover my health. I, 
I found myself chatting with a woman who was seated at my table in the dining saloon. She found occasion, as such women often will, to mention her age. She said, after all, I'm not yet 40. And then it happened. What happened? Well, from somewhere came crashing into my mind a certain knowledge of the exact day and year of that woman's birth. Hmm? And with it, a compulsion to speak out. A compulsion which I could no more have resisted than I could have resisted breathing. I said, Madam, you were born in May, weren't you? May 30th. And she looked at me in utter astonishment. We'd never even seen each other before in our lives. And said, yes. And, and then I added the date, the year 1900. See, she was well over 40. She'd lied to me. Innocent enough thing, but I had known the truth. And I'd been forced to speak. And I have been ever since. This, uh... Phenomena has occurred often? More times than I can remember. Every time a direct lie, no matter how trivial, is uttered in my presence, I suddenly know the answer to that lie. I know the truth. And I'm compelled to speak it. Mm. And this condition has existed only since your... Uh... Since my four minutes beyond the grave, mm, yes. Quite. It's as though in that brief time I, I glimpsed eternity. As if I'd seen revealed all truth... Of all the ages. I can never tell you how horrible that seems. I found that men, even the most honest of men, live by lies. Tell me, you have a family, friends who are understanding? Oh, for heaven's sake, Doctor, don't you understand what this has done to me? Yes, I had a family and friends, a girl I was going to marry. Today I'm, I'm an outcast, pariah. I'm, I'm shunned, feared. I, I'm hated. Yes, hated. Mr. Holcomb. I, Mr. Hawkins, I believe that this condition is very real to you. It causes you very real anguish. I want to help you. Do you think you can? I'm confident that I can. Suppose you could arrange to stay with me here at my home for a matter of weeks or months, if necessary. Well, I'll do anything. Go anything ahead. in the world to be a normal man again, but... But what? Dr. Graham, I... I can see that you still don't believe me. Oh, no. I beg of you... You don't know the terrible responsibility I'd be to you. I'd be like a spy, like some inexorable prosecutor from another world. Mr. Holcomb, <laughs> let me worry about that. All right. Is there anyone else in your household who might object? Oh, no, there's only my wife and her aunt. I have your own quarters. It'd be quite comfortable, I assure you. I'm sure I'd be. It's a lovely house that I've seen of it. Yes, I'm rather lucky. I'm interested in research primarily. Not much money in that, you know, but a couple of years ago I came into quite a nice inheritance. The house went with it. What is it? What's the matter? The inheritance was not yours. It was your wife's. The house is your wife's. You were penniless. That's true. I don't know why I lied to you. Pride, I suppose. I... I'm sorry. I told you I couldn't help it. No, no. I'll go now. <laughs> Please. <laughs> My fault is a small matter. But you see now that I... I can... want to help you. Do you believe me now? I believe, Mr. Holcomb, either that you are far more ill than I realized or that in months to come, you and I must venture into a realm never before explored by mortal man. <laughs> utterly fantastic, and yet it was true. I checked the facts again and again. He could not possibly have known, and yet he knew. 
you imagine what this meant to a man of science? If I could fathom the depths of Roger Holcomb's mind, I could make a contribution to the body of scientific knowledge absolutely without parallel in modern times. I'd be more famous than Pasteur or Ehrlich. There remained the problem of Isabel. I was aware of the danger, of course. I was acutely aware of the peculiarly delicate balance of her mind at that time. The fact that the presence of a man like Roger Holcomb might, might be seriously detrimental to my rather well-conceived plans for Isabel. I believed I could control the situation. I determined to proceed. Actually, Holcomb's presence made itself felt almost immediately. The first incident came after he'd been with us. Isabel, please stop that playing and listen to me. And Jane, you know, Robert has said I mustn't talk about it, that it's bad for me. I don't care what Robert said. But he's my doctor and my husband. And I'm not sure that he should be either. That's Jane. I don't know much about psychiatry, but I do know that making trouble between a husband and a wife... I'm not making anything that isn't there already, and you know it. Good heavens, girl. Look at yourself. Look what's happened to you since your marriage. I've been sick. He's made you sick. That's ridiculous. Maybe it's just that he's afraid of losing you. Maybe he's even afraid of losing your money. But I'm absolutely convinced that whether he's meant to or not, he's made you believe there's something the matter with you that isn't. Aunt Jane, I simply forbid you to talk this way. And now he brings this, this psychopath into the house. And don't bring Roger into it. He's Robert's patient. It's Robert's work and it's none of our business. What about your own work? It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter? Aunt Jane, you simply don't understand. Robert is my husband. I trust him and I love him. Nothing can ever come between us. I'd destroy anything. I'd kill anyone who tried. Isabel. Isabel, do something before it's too late. Do what? Get away. Leave him. Divorce him. Anything. Oh, I hope we're not interrupting. Of course not, darling. Hello, Roger. Hello, Isabel. Good afternoon. How are you feeling, Roger? Quite better, I think. I think it would be better if we didn't discuss our states of mind, Isabel. Oh, of course. I'm sorry. Well... Would you like me to play something for you? You know, I think I'm beginning to get the feel of it again. Really, I do. You're sure we haven't interrupted some conversation? Of course not. We were just discussing how helpful you've been in getting Isabel back to her work again. Roger. No. No, you were not. You were telling Isabel to divorce her husband. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Roger, come back. Isabel, is that true? You brought him in here deliberately. Is that true? It doesn't matter, I suppose. You've known how I felt for a long time. Yes, I'm afraid I have. Robert, it was also silly. She didn't mean it. It was just I did she... mean it. But I did mean it. I'm sorry, Isabel. But I've been under this roof too long as it is. Oh, Jane, you're not leaving us. It's this, Isabel. Yes. Yes, I think it's unquestionably best. Best that you go at once. <laughs> She left us, of course. I'd always believed that Jane exercised an unfortunate influence over Isabel. I did not dream it had reached such a point as this. Yet this incident gave me my first insight into the relationship which was destined to develop between Isabel Roger and myself. The first and most obvious result was that within a matter of weeks, Isabel was to lose every friend she had. We became further estranged as each day passed. It was difficult to speak of even the most casual things with this, this strangely terrifying specter of truth. Always at our elbows. 
situation reached its inevitable climax the evening that Leopold Sarinsky, the famous conductor of the Los Angeles Symphony, was to call on Isabel with a view to resumption of her professional career under his auspices. I gave a great deal of thought to that evening. It had to be handled with a great... Robert, you will help me, won't you? Of course I will, darling. I don't know whether you realize how important it is to me. I have nothing but the music now. I've been working so hard. Playing sometimes half the night yes. while you were asleep. I've heard you. Sometimes it seems that, that the piano's all that's helping me to keep my sanity. Uh, my darling, I, I, I want you to let me prescribe something for you. It's time we face this thing, your trouble, I mean. Robert, does he have to have dinner with us tonight? Roger... Isabel, you know how I stand on that. Oh, yes, but just now, this even, one... Even once, Isabel, keep him in the, his room like a spoiled child and we have guests. Isabel, it, it might undo everything I've accomplished in weeks. Oh, of course. You're right. But, uh... Roger, come in. Robert, I... I was wondering if I mightn't be excused just tonight. Oh, you're having dinner with us, Roger. Must I? You know you must, Roger, and you know why. Why, Roger, don't you want to meet the great Leopold Sarinsky? He's really a wonderful person. Yes, indeed, I would very much. But... You know, I made my debut with him in 1934. I did a concert with him every year until my... Until I... Isabel uh, was very talented, you know. I was? <laughs> I am. Oh, Roger, I'm going to play with him again. He wants me to open the season in November... Can you imagine what that means to me? I'm so glad, Isabel. And Robert has finally given his consent. Haven't you, dear? I'm, I'm sorry. What was it you said, Isabel? I said you'd given your consent to my playing with Sarinsky. Well, Isabel, you... You know I don't want you to think that I'd ever stand in your way. I know, dear. Roger, I'll do the Emperor Concerto, and you will come to hear me. You do want to, don't you, Roger? I... Please, Isabel, don't ask things of me that can't... What's the matter? What's the matter with both of you? You act as though you thought I wouldn't be able to appear. As though the whole idea were hopeless or something. Isabel, please. I am going to play. I'll be better than I ever was. You know I will, don't you? Don't you? Yes, of course, Isabel. You play wonderfully. Roger. No, Robert. You, you're very certain that Isabel will be prevented from ever playing again. By death. Death. Oh, Isabel, forgive me, forgive me, please. My death. No. Oh, no. Please, Roger, it's not true. Tell me it isn't. Roger, answer me. Answer me. Roger, do you hear me? Answer me. Answer me! <laughs> When Sarinsky arrived, I told him it would be quite impossible for Isabel to leave her room. The concert was canceled, and indeed, to my knowledge, she's never touched the piano since that day. By now, to even the most casual observer, it must appear only natural that Isabel had every motive for a desperate, almost paranoid hatred of Roger Holcomb. This much was clear to me. The rest, not yet. But one thing, from any point of view, was certain. I had to keep Roger and Isabel apart. Perhaps what I feared was indeed inevitable. I honestly did not think it so at the time. As a precautionary measure, however, I prescribed a drug for Isabel, which she at last consented to take. I gave her her own supply. She administered it to herself, as I had directed. Roger? Roger? Yes? It's Isabel. What do you want? Let me in, please. 
No. Please, it's terribly important. Robert said that I... I know. But he said it would be all right this time. You so? Yes. Yes, please. Uh-huh. Now, what do you want? I want to talk to you, that's all. What about it? It's so important. Roger, why don't you ever leave your room anymore? Can't you guess? Do you think I hate you? Isabel, I don't know what to think anymore. You do, don't you? I warned him. I, I told him it would happen. Now I'm going mad up here. I think of the anguish I've caused you. But, Roger, I don't. You must believe me. I know what it's been like for you having me here. Isabel. Roger, you see, for the first time in my life, I think my husband is wrong about something. Wrong? Yes. Don't you see? He's been worried about both of us. And so this, this distrust has grown up between us. Well, I, I don't distrust you, Isabel. You've been more wonderful to me than I can But you're, you're afraid of me. And that amounts to the same thing. And it's bad for the both of us. It's, it's hurting both of us. Well, I've often felt I wanted to talk to you, to beg your pardon. Oh, you don't have to do that. We're both sick. But I think if we saw each other sometimes, if we talked the whole thing out, it would, it would help us both. Well, does, does Robert think so, too? No. Then, then he didn't tell you it was all right to see me. No. I lied to you. You, you what? I lied to you. You lied to me. And, and it didn't happen. Isabel, don't you see? I, I am getting well. It didn't happen. I, I know. See. I don't think it does happen anymore. Except with Robert. With Robert? What makes you think I don't know. All... Something about the way he acts. The way he is. Oh, but Isabel, he is curing me then. Perhaps you shouldn't have come No, up no, don't you understand? We must see each other. We must talk. No, listen. listen. Isabel. Robert, something's happened that I must Please, tell you about. Please, you're completely overwrought. Oh, but Robert, it's... I Robert. must insist, Isabel. Why did you do this? I'm you sorry. You have a sedative right away, Isabel. Get the bottle from your room. Mine? Yes, yes. Please, hurry. All right. Robert, she lied to me. Yes, yes, I know. But, Roger, I must I... absolutely forbid you to talk now. You must trust All me. All right, but later I want to have a long talk with you. Of course, she we lied. shall. Here it is. I brought my hypodermic, too. I'm glad you did. The other one's mislaid somewhere. Will you give it to him, please? I? Yes, I'm sorry, but this has upset me rather badly. My hands are shaking. Robert, I'm terribly sorry. No matter now. Give him the hypodermic. Me up around. That's right. There. Thank you. Leave us now, please, Isabel. All right. How are you feeling now, Roger? Well, I'm fine, Robert. I, I think I'm better than I've been in months. I know you're better. That's why I was so upset to see you. But why, Robert? can't tell you all my reasons now, but you must trust me and believe in me. Oh, I do, but... Only that I'm afraid. For your health. Roger. No. You're afraid of murder. What? Murder. Roger, listen to me. Roger. Murder. Roger, what are you talking about? Roger! Roger! It was clear to me now. I knew I must take immediate action. I knew that the most terrible consequences might result if Isabel were alone with Roger, even for a moment. But he knew that he'd said so. There was no other explanation. I thought it through most carefully... And yet no plans are perfect. No man is infallible. Isabel! Robert! Frightened. What are you doing? 
Nothing. Don't lie to me, Isabel. I'm not. I you were just... coming from Roger's room. No. No, I swear I won't. Isabel, don't you understand that you're sick? That I've insisted on these things for your own good and his. All right. I was going to talk to him, but I haven't. Oh, Isabel. Why do you try to tell me that? But it's true, Robert. Really true. Is it? Roger. Roger. What's the matter? Look. Robert. No, it couldn't be. It is. He's dead. Dead? Hypodermic by his side, the drug, your drug, your hypodermic. But it's only a sedative. Except in large enough quantity, it's fatal. You knew that. Oh, Robert, don't listen to me. Isabel, why? Why, I warned you. Robert, look at me. It's Isabel. It's your wife. You can't... Oh, no. Where are you going? Come back. I'm going to call the police. Perhaps the most terrible decision a man ever had to make, even though it did come not as a shock to me, even from my point of view as a scientist. It was terrible enough. Yet it had to be done, and I had done it. I did not speak to her as we waited, and she made no further attempt to appeal to me. She seemed utterly stupefied, perhaps as a result of the drugs she'd herself been taking. Perhaps because she suddenly realized she was hopelessly trapped. The police arrived, I told the story with a little emotion. Fingerprints, all right, on both the bottles. Those would be hypodermic. my wife's, of course. They both belong to her. Is that true, Mrs. Graham? Yes. Dr. Graham, do I understand, then, that you are formally charging your wife with the murder of Roger Holcomb? Well, you could hardly expect me to do that, could you? I'm simply telling you the facts. Yes, but you said she hated Holcomb, and you knew it. My wife has been mentally ill for some time. There are many people who can testify to that. You plead insanity, of course. Well, Dr. Graham, I can't tell you how sorry I am, but... Things you have told me add up to only one thing, as you yourself obviously recognize. Yes. Your wife, Isabel Graham, murdered Roger Holcomb. What did you say? I said your wife, Isabel Graham, murdered Roger Holcomb. No. I murdered him. I tried to make it appear that Isabel had done it. And I succeeded. But I killed him. No plans are perfect. No man is infallible. Yes, I killed Roger Holcomb. And he himself revealed the truth. I'd planned to dispose of Isabel for many months. I'd never loved her. I'd loved only science. I wanted her money and Holcomb found it out. That was the risk I ran. But any chance lie in his presence, either by Isabel or myself, would bring out the truth, and it did. I had no alternative once he'd discovered that. But to kill him. It's easy enough to throw the blame on Isabel. I had not counted on that terrible compulsion for the truth. That strange affliction of Roger Holcomb's. Its power over me. 
Did it transfer itself at his death to me? Or was it conscience? Pity that it had to end this way. It's a fascinating case. closes Lazarus Walks, starring Orson Welles. of suspense asks you to almost believe that the following is true. Very well. Standing beside me, surrounded by two guards, is a man who in a few short hours is to be put to death in the electric chair. His last request to the warden was that he be allowed to speak on this program and reveal what he calls some startling information. The warden naturally turned to us and we at once complied, anxious at all times to do anything, however strange, that will hold our listeners in suspense. All right, all right. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking correctly. Yes, right here, sir. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, this broadcast will never be completed. I'm going to tell you a story. This story involves a number of famous and influential people here as well as abroad. These people have received warning from me, and I am sure all of them are making it a point to listen to me now. I shall not name these great, these rich, these influential gentlemen until my story is over. They will recognize the story, they will remember me, they will take the necessary steps for my reprieve. I shall expect a full pardon and safe conduct to a neutral country. These are my terms. I shall expect word of this to be brought to this studio during this broadcast. But as I have warned you, this broadcast will never be finished. You will never hear those names. It is certain my price will be paid. I am presently under sentence of death for my activities in the matter of refueling German submarines in the Caribbean. My full confession has been reproduced in the popular press. You have read it and you know the details. It is the least ingenious of my exploits and my first failure. So much for it. The story I shall tell you tonight occurred many years ago, but concerns, as I have said, many now living. It will interest you, I hope. I know it will interest them. Very well, then. Uh, on the 3rd of June, 1925, in Liverpool, a man who gave his name as Monsieur Louis Caratel asked to see Mr. James Bland, the superintendent of the London and West Coast Railway. He was a small man, this Caratel, middle-aged, darkened, with a stoop so pronounced that it suggested some deformity of the spine. He was accompanied by a friend, a man of imposing physique, who from his swarthy complexion was probably either a Spaniard or a South American. It turned out later that his name was Gomez. One peculiarity was observed in him. He carried in his left hand, fastened to his wrist by a strap, a small leather dispatch case. No importance was attached to this fact at the time, but later events endowed it with much significance. Monsieur Caratel was shown to Mr. Bland's office while his companion remained outside. 
My name is Louis Caratel. Yes, sir. What can I do for you? I have just arrived from Central America this afternoon. It is extremely urgent that I reach Paris without a moment's delay. Paris, eh? Hmm. It's too bad. Just missed the London Express. I am not interested in the London Express. Could you provide me with a special train? Yes, I think that could be arranged. Oh? It's quite an expensive proposition. Uh, money is of a small importance, monsieur. Time is everything. If you can arrange a special for me in a hurry, you may make your own terms. Very well. Mr. Hood, will you step over here a moment, please? Yes, Mr. Bland. Uh, Mr. Hood, uh, here's our traffic manager, Mr. Caratel. Mm. Uh, Hood, I want you to arrange a special for him. He's going to Paris. How's the line? Can you fix him up in a hurry? Why, yes, I believe so, Mr. Bland. The line is clear through Manchester, and engine 247 at the Rochdale is on the tracks now. It could be ready, say, in 15 minutes. Good. Who's available for the trip? Uh, engineer Smith, sir. And I can put James McPherson on as conductor. Well, there you are, Mr. Carrotel. Simple as that. Tender everything right away, will you, Hood? Yes, sir. Uh, these men, uh, Mr. Smith and... Uh, uh, Mc McPherson? Uh, McPherson. Are they trustworthy? Oh, yes. Of course. McPherson's been with the company for years. And I'm sure Smith, although new, is an expert engineer. Well, thank you, monsieur. I am deeply indebted. You have been most considerate. At 4.31 exactly by the station clock, the special train with Caratel and Gomez steamed out of the Liverpool station. The line at that time was clear and there should have been no stoppage between Manchester. At a quarter after six, considerable surprise and some consternation was caused among the officials at Liverpool by the receipt of a wire from Manchester to say that the special had not yet arrived. An inquiry directed at once to St. Helens, which is a third of the way between the two cities, elicited the following reply. To James Bland, Superintendent, Liverpool. Special passed here at 4.52. Well up to time. Dowser, St. Helens. The wire was received at 6.40. At 6.50, a second message was received from Manchester. No sign of special is advised by you. And then, ten minutes later, a third, more bewildering. Presume some mistake is proposed running of special. Local train from St. Helens, timed to follow it, has just arrived and has seen nothing of it. Kindly wire advices. Manchester. The matter was assuming a most amazing aspect. Although in some respects the last telegram was a relief to the authorities at Liverpool, if an accident had occurred to the special, it seemed hardly possible that the local train could have passed down the same line without observing it. And yet, what was the alternative? Where could the train be? A telegram was dispatched to each of the stations between St. Helens and Manchester, and the superintendent and his traffic manager waited in the utmost suspense at the instrument for the series of replies. The answers came back in the order of questions, which was the order of the stations, beginning at St. Helens. Special passed here, five o'clock, Collins Green. Special passed here, six past five, Earlstown. Special passed here, five ten, Newton. Special passed here, 5.20, Kenyon Junction. No special train is passed here, Barton Moss. Hood, 
This is unique in my 30 years of experience. I can't understand it, Mr. Bland. The special has gone wrong between Kenyon Junction and Barton Moss. And yet there's no siding between the two stations. Special must have run off the rails, jumped the track. But how could the 450 parliamentary pass over the same line without seeing it? There's no alternative for it. Absolutely must be so. Possibly the local may have observed something which may throw sunlight on the matter. We'll wire to Manchester for more information and to Kenyon Junction with instructions that the line be examined intently as far as Barton Moss. <laughs> answer from Manchester came within a few minutes. No news of missing special. Driver and guard of local train positive. No accident between Kenyon Junction and Barton Moss. Line quite clear and no sign of anything unusual. Manchester. This is lunacyhood. Does a train vanish into thin air in England in broad daylight? The thing's preposterous. An engine, a tender, car, five human beings, and all lost on a straight line of railway. It's impossible. A month elapsed, during which both the police and the company prosecuted their inquiries without the slightest success. Mr. Bland, at the end of this period, offered his resignation. It was accepted. The affair remained unsolved. A reward was offered and a pardon promised in case of crime, but they were both unclaimed. Every day the public opened their papers with the conviction that so grotesque a mystery would at last be solved, but week after week passed by and a solution remained as far off as ever. Then a new and most unexpected incident occurred. This was nothing less than the receipt by Mrs. McPherson of a letter from her husband, James McPherson, who had been conductor of the missing train. The letter, which was dated July 5, 1925, was posted from Mozambique, Portuguese East Africa, and came to hand upon the July 14th. My dear wife, I've been thinking a great deal, and I find it very hard to give you up. I try to fight against it, but it will always come back to me. I send you some money, which will change into 20 English poems. This should be enough to bring you here. Things are very difficult with me at present, and I'm not very happy, finding it so hard to give you up. So no more at present. From your loving husband, James McPherson. For a time, it was confidently anticipated that the letter would lead to the clearing up of the whole incident. As directed, Mrs. McPherson sailed to Portuguese East Africa. She stayed in Mozambique for some time, but heard nothing from the missing man. Finally, she returned to Liverpool, and so the matter stood. And has continued to stand right up to the present moment. Incredible as it may seem, nothing has transpired during those 18 years which has shed the least light upon the extraordinary disappearance of this special train which contained Monsieur Caratel and his companion, Mr. Gomez, and McPherson, the conductor, Smith, the engineer, the fireman named Slater. And now, after all this time, I shall clear up the entire affair. And unless I hear from those so highly respectable gentlemen who were my employers and who are completely implicated in the crime, unless I hear from them before I'm finished, their names will be revealed on this broadcast. Take final warning, gentlemen. You know I mean what I say. If you are smart, you are at this moment arranging my reprieve. I must remind you, time is short. You have just uh, 
six minutes. <laughs> now, for the interest of my other listeners, I shall resume the story of the lost special. In a word, there was a famous trial in Paris in the year 1925, perhaps you recall it, in connection with a monstrous scandal, scandal in politics and finance. How monstrous that scandal was can never be known except by such confidential agents as myself. At stake were the honor and careers of many of the chief men of Europe and the United States. A secret committee was formed to manage the business. Some subscribed to the committee who hardly understood what were its objects, but others understood very well. They can rely upon it that I have not forgotten their names. Do you think I could forget your names, gentlemen? You uh, pillars of the community, great, rich, respected, honorable men. Hmm? Do you remember that day in May 1925? The fashionable country club, remember? And the golf game that was played there that spring morning? Ladies and gentlemen, that was the strangest golf game ever played in the history of this world. Oh, scratch. Look at that drive. I've been playing badly all morning. <laughs> you topped it, Senator. Perhaps you're a little nervous. I beg your pardon? May I join your game? Uh, well, I'm not sure... Not sure should... of what? Of me? <laughs> I promise you, gentlemen, you can be very sure of me. I'm the man you're supposed to meet. The distinguished congressman here can vouch for me. Yeah, he's the one, all right. Yes. This is Delerniak. Uh, Mr. Delerniak, may I present... Uh, the... My name is not really Delerniak, gentlemen, but I am sure that bothers you no less than it does me. Besides, there is no need for introductions. I know everyone present by sight and by reputation. My drive, I believe. Thank you. Not so good. Two hundred and, uh, what, about fifty yards. <laughs> I hope I'm not going to continue in this way. You're, you're sure we can talk safely here, Frank? Uh, please set your mind at ease. We shan't be overheard in the middle of a golf course. Mm -hmm. There is no convenient hiding place here for dictaphones, even in the rough, where I notice you're playing the greater part of your game, Senator. You must be nervous this morning. I know, but I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Well, it's, it's not the superlative it's... course you are accustomed to on your own enormous uh, California estate, sir, but it's going to have to serve our particular purpose. Oh, by the way, let me compliment you on the way you've had your syndicate of newspapers handle the recent strike situation and the editorial which appeared under your own signature this I... morning. Yes, well calculated to stir up please, trouble please, with the uh, labor. Let's get on with our business. We yes, I, uh, uh, Mr. Delignac... At your service, sir. And may I suggest we continue our game? I know the absence of caddies is an inconvenience. Uh, Mr. Delignac... Certainly. In June, a month from now in Paris, there will be a most uh, important trial. Ah, yes. During its progress... Uh, pardon me, are you referring to the Sarinsky trial? Oh. Yes. Uh, I... You know about it, then. Well, certain interesting details. I know something about it's my business, after all, to keep myself informed about these matters. It is not for nothing that I am known as the most... Then let me continue, please. This trial, yes. I'm speaking in the utmost confidence, you understand. Uh, this trial could, if certain evidence were introduced, could have a very serious effect upon the prestige and standing of some most important men. I'm sure in fact, it. it could even... You're shivering, Senator. You find it cold out uh, here? No. No, no, get on with it, Frank. Get to the point. For heaven's sake, please. The evidence which one man could bring to the trial could ruin these men. Without it, the trial will collapse for want of facts. Mm -hmm. But if this one man arrives in yeah, Paris, uh, I... Quite evidently, you do not wish him to arrive in Paris. No. Uh, gentlemen, you have come to the man. This uh, sounds indeed like the sort of thing which no one in the world can manage with such skill and success as myself. 
I must admit, however, that my services come rather high. Well, d- it's only natural since there is only the one. The money makes no difference. We have formed a group, a committee, and we have the command of an unlimited amount of money. Absolutely ah, unlimited, well, you hear. We will name people in places now. Who is the gentleman whose appearance in Paris would... Uh, cause such regrettable embarrassment. His name is Caratal, Louis ah, Caratal. Caratal. He knows everything. He has papers, yes, documents, yes, I, all I the understand. evidence. Where we... is this Monsieur Caratal? Uh, well, he's sailing from somewhere in Central America Central within America. the next few days. Uh, that much we know. Good, good. Central America. I have an excellent man down there in Central America. This Caratal... Uh, you know anything about him, uh, person, his personal well, habits? Well, uh, no, very little. He's a small man, dark. Uh, he yes. has a bodyguard, a great big bruiser named uh, Lopez. Let me see, from Central like America, that would be the Americano Tropicana. Oh, those are my uh, ships. You do. Trips uh, all commence at Liverpool, mm. I believe. Uh, that's where the ships dock and our famous trial is to begin in three weeks. That would mean that Monsieur Caratel would go directly to London, and I imagine that once there he would be heavily guarded, since it can be no surprise to him that you gentlemen are not without uh, connections in the British uh, capital. Uh, that's good, clean you thinking. see, this is not so simple as some of my other exploits, a simple assassination. Huh? Uh, there's your ball, sir. You're playing a Dunlop 38, aren't you? Huh? Uh, oh, yes. Yes, yes, to be sure, yes. (laughs) Quite. As I said, a simple assassination, the usual clumsy job will not do here. The documents might, after all, be found. The bodyguard might survive somehow, and then we have accomplished nothing, not so. Uh, Are you going to play? Yes, yes, of course, of course. Topped it again, I'm afraid. (laughs) Shall we proceed? I already have three plans in my head, gentlemen. I have a plan for nailing him at the Central American port from which he embarks. I have a plan for his disposal aboard the ship. But in each of these cases, I, Delaniac, will be unable to be present. So there is the chance of failure. <coughs> I will think of a third plan, gentlemen. I shall sail immediately to Liverpool on my way there, sitting on the deck in the May sunshine. I shall conceive my third plan. It must be something special. Something very special. <laughs> there I am. Is this your famous water hazard? Well, I think a number seven iron will do it. And thus I undertook to bring about the complete destruction of Monsieur Caratelli's bodyguard companion Gomez and his documents. Plan one was already out the window as I found out the next day. Belerniak. White Sulphur Springs, Virginia. Baby Lou, unable sleep last few nights, have sent him to visit Aunt Henriette. Will rejoin him on 21st. Love, Jenny. Uh, this telegram from Matagalpa conveyed to me the information that Caratel, possibly sensing danger, had moved from his hotel and gone to stay with friends until his ship sailed. So it was impossible to carry out the idea of the fire in the hotel. His ship leaving on the 21st was the Henriette. On my fourth day at sea, I heard from her. Delanac, Barrancaria. Ship-to-ship communication from Henriette, Tropicana Line. Presented Grace your box of chocolates. Louise has given up candy for Lent. Grace still wants us all together for 29th birthday party will be really special, Ralph. This meant that poison had been given to Gomez, the bodyguard, in an effort to get him at least out of the way. He'd been unable to succumb to it. He'd thrown off the effects, and it's evidenced by the report that we would 
all be together on the 29th. Now, Caratel had refused to eat the food containing the poison. So much for plan two, which was not worthy of me anyway, since there was always the possibility of the bodies being found in the ocean. The man Gomez was carrying the documents in a dispatch case strapped to his wrist, and I must tell you something now. I was glad, glad, mind you, that we had failed so far, for the plan I had conceived on the night I arrived in Liverpool was so magnificent, so absolutely unprecedented in the annals of crime that I owed it to myself, to my employers, and to history to carry it through. The inspiration came from the words in the code telegram which indicated that Cartel would arrive uh, in London and hire a special train there to convey him uh, from Liverpool. My British agent, Mr. Moore, and I contrived to buy over several officials of the railway. Now, here begins the story. First, the division head who helped us employ James McPherson, whom we contrived to be the conductor of any special train we designated. Then further, at a sum that would make them independent for life, we bought over an engine driver named Oswald Smith and the fireman John Slater. These men we arranged with the division head would be assigned to whatever special train was hired by Caratel. On the afternoon of June 3rd, as I was sitting in my room at the inn at Barton Moss, the call I had been awaiting came through. It was McPherson reporting. Hello, Mr. Delaniac. We shall be leaving in a few minutes. Mm. He's hired the special. Good. Smith will be engine driver and Slater fireman. And of course, I'll be in charge. What about Moore? Will he be aboard? Afraid not, sir. He gave them quite a story about having to reach his sick wife and all. But Caratal would have none of it. You said, though, sir, that it didn't matter. It, it does not matter. What uh, time will you pass Kenyon Junction? Mm. Let me see, sir. If we leave the next few minutes, we should be there at 510. 510. It's a 49-minute run, sir. 49 minutes. I, I, I can make it, but delay all you can before you start. Uh, yes, sir. I guess it's all up to you from now on. Best of luck, sir. Oh, uh, here they come, sir. Goodbye. <laughs> Everything had been prepared for days before, and only the finishing touches were needed. The sidetrack, just before Gorton Moss, leading to the abandoned Hartsey's Mine, had once joined the main line, but it had been disconnected when the mine had been worked out some years before. We had only to replace a few rails to connect it once more. With my small but competent band of workers, we had everything ready well before the special arrived. When it did arrive, it ran off upon the small sideline so easily that the jolting of the switch points appears to have been entirely unnoticed by the two travelers. So, now I have our special train upon the small line, which leads, or rather used to lead, to the abandoned mine. You will ask how it is that no one saw the train upon this unused line. I answer that along its entire length it runs through a deep cutting and that unless someone had been on the edge of that cutting, he could not have seen it. There was someone on the edge of that cutting. I was there. And now I will tell you what I saw. The moment the train was fairly on the sideline, Smith slowed down the engine, and then having turned it on full speed ahead, he and McPherson with Slater, the fireman, sprang off before it was too late. It may be that was this slowing down which first attracted the attention of the travelers, but the train was running at top speed before their heads appeared at the open window. It makes me smile to think how bewildered they must have been. 
What a catch must have come to their breath as it flashed upon them that it was not Manchester that was awaiting them, but death. The train was now running at frantic speed, falling and rocking over the rotten, rusty line, while the wheels made a frightful screaming sound on the corroded surface. I was close to them and could see their faces. Caratel was praying, I think. There was something like a rosary dangling out of his hand. The other Gomez roared like a bull, but was drowned out by the incredible noise of the train. He saw me standing on the bank. When he realized he couldn't be heard, he beckoned to me like a madman, tearing at his wrist and hurling the dispatch box out of the window in my direction. Of course, his meaning was obvious. Here was the evidence that they would promise to be silent if their lives were spared. Would have been very agreeable if it could have been done so, but business is business. Besides, the train was now so much beyond our control as it was theirs. He ceased his howling and gesturing when the train rattled around the curve and they saw the black mouth of the mine yawning before them. They were struck silent by what they saw and yet they could not withdraw their heads. The sight seemed to have paralyzed them. I had wondered how the train running at a great speed would take the pit, and I was much interested in watching it. One of my colleagues who had joined me there thought it actually would jump it, and indeed it was not very far from doing so. It leaped into the air and seemed to hang suspended for a moment. The funnel flew off into the air, and then the van, the car, and the engine were all smashed up into one jumble which choked the mouth of the Great Britain. Something gave way in the middle, and the whole mass of iron-cold fittings, wheels, woodwork, and cushions crumbled together and crashed into the mine. It was perfect. Muddy water standing in the bottom of the pit 200 feet below responded to the intense heat of the engine boilers. It hissed loudly and blew great bubbles of black mire into the air. At the same time, the walls of the pit loosened by the impact of the train as it struck the opposite side, gave way, and a mighty avalanche of rock and dirt thundered down upon the wreckage of the train as it settled with a low, hissing sigh was covered forever by the mud and mire. The vapor hanging in the air shredded off into thin, small wisps, and all was quiet again in the Hartsey's mine. <laughs> and now, having carried out our plan so successfully, it remained only to leave no trace behind us. Our little band of workers at the other end had already ripped up the rails and disconnected the sideline, replacing everything as it had been before. We were equally busy at the mine. The lines which led to it were torn up and taken away. Then, without flurry but without delay, we all made our way out of the country, most of us to Paris, my English agent, to Manchester and Macpherson to East Africa. A word in passing about Macpherson, who was foolish enough to write to his wife and tell her to meet him in Mozambique. And naturally, we took steps to ensure that this meeting would never come about. I have sometimes thought it would be a kindness to write to Mrs. Macpherson and to assure her that there is no the impediment to her marrying again. <laughs> but of the lost special, let the English papers of that date tell how thoroughly we had done our work and how completely we had thrown the cleverest of their detectives off our track. You will remember that Gomez threw his bag of papers out of the window. 
and I need not say that I secured that bag and brought them to my employers. It may interest my employers now, however, to learn that out of that bag I took one or two little papers as a souvenir of that occasion. I had no wish to read the information obtained by these papers, but it is now oh, it's less than a minute before my broadcast is over. And I have received no word. It is the final hour. I see at the other end of the studio the engineer waving his hands at me that my time is almost up. Well, I gave you warning. You had your chance, gentlemen. Very well. Now I reveal your names. And the first name I reveal is that of Charles Foster. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, they're trying murder. I want you to hear these names quickly. I know you will avenge me. The names are... Names. <coughs> there he goes. Kalania, can you hear me? Are you all right? Hey, Bill, play something quick. Will you theme curtain music? Anything. And so closes the last special by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, starring Orson Welles. If you enjoyed that golden age of radio production, be sure to follow the Riley and Kimmy show. We feature old-time radio shows from time to time. We have archived episodes available right now on our website at RileyandKimmy.com. Some of them have old-time radio episodes on them. Please tell your friends about the Riley and Kimmy show. Help us grow. Our social media links are available on our website at RileyandKimmy.com. That's R-I-L-E-Y and Kimmy, K-I-M-M-Y, dot com. If you friend, follow, and like us, we will friend and follow you back. Also, be sure to check out our website, events page, and our social media pages for updates where the Riley and Kimmy show will be appearing next. And we're available for your pop culture event and also those that are animal-based, about pets and animals, too. We have a spinoff show called Animal Special. So be sure to tell your friends about us. It's the Riley and Kimmy Show, the nerd variety talk show with daily pop culture episodes. The Riley and Kimmy Show. Find archive podcasts of the Riley and Kimmy Show at RileyandKimmy.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.